Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the inaugural Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. I am Cathy Jacobs, President of the ACOI, and it is a huge privilege for me to host this inaugural podcast. This initiative has been many months in the planning, and as a fan of podcasts myself, I'm very excited to be on the other side. To help us launch the Compliance Files podcast, I am delighted to welcome as our first guest, Shauna Cunningham, Director of Enforcement and Anti-Money Laundering, the Central Bank of Ireland. Shauna was appointed Director of Enforcement and Anti-Money Laundering in January 2018. Prior to this appointment, Shauna was Head of Enforcement Advisory Division and Deputy Head of the Anti-Money Laundering Division at the Central Bank. She joined the Central Bank in 2011, having previously worked as a solicitor for over a decade in private practice in Ireland and the UK. Shauna is here to discuss with me today some topical issues close to all our hearts and to give us some insight into the Central Bank's plans for 2021. Welcome, Shauna, and thank you very much for talking to us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Cathy. Turning to the future in 2021 um, specifically, 2020 was a year like no other. Governor McClough a couple of days ago described it as a year to remember and to forget in his uh, University of Limerick address. Um, and that includes for regulated firms, and I would I would guess the central bank as well, with, with COVID-19 and the end of the transition period for, for Brexit. Before we look forward, um, how was your 2020? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, <laughs> Cathy. I, I've been working at the central bank for 10 years now, and certainly 2020 was a challenging year. Uh, similar to the experience I suspect of anyone who is listening to this, it's impacted everyone in different ways, and it's tough, and it continues to be. But having said that, you know, working in the central bank, we do have a very clear sense of purpose. We're working in the public interest and we had important work to do last year to address challenges that arose in the context of the pandemic. And we had to adapt rapidly to change ways of working. But we have hugely committed, experienced and really highly skilled people working in the central bank who worked incredibly hard last year to address the challenges we faced and to continue to deliver on the important mandate of the central bank. Yes, and uh, just quoting Governor McClough again, you know, that sense of purpose definitely comes through. He spoke about, you know, the welfare of the people as a whole has always been at, at the core of your work. Um, so that that definitely comes through. And looking forward, can you give us an insight into the priorities of the central bank for for 2021? Yes, and I mean to to, to quote the governor again, I, he he gave a speech uh, this week to the students in the University of Limerick, where I went to college myself. So I was delighted to see that, and he gave a really good outline of the central bank's priorities for 2021. And you know, he made the point that we are going to be you know continuing to look to deepen our understanding of the impacts of the pandemic and looking to take any necessary steps to enable the financial system to support the recovery. I'd highly recommend for anyone interested to read a speech. It's an excellent overview of the work of the central bank and, and a roadmap for our year ahead. It's going to be a busy year for us, but indeed I suspect for all of the compliance professionals listening to this, you know, I think similarly it'll be a busy year for all of us. And I would really like to wish everyone well in their work this year. 
I'm conscious that, you know, compliance professionals say, play such an important role in terms of the work that, that you do. And these are difficult times for everyone. So I, I would like to wish everyone well for the year ahead. Okay, thank you, Shauna. And um, our members will certainly be heartened um, to hear that, that, you, that you do acknowledge the role that they play. Shauna, taking diversity and inclusion as an important theme for the central bank, the central bank has been championing the diversity and inclusion agenda for some time now. We have had on many occasions heard from the central bank leadership that this is an important strategic, cultural and governance matter. And the central bank has been measuring progress in various ways. Could you just please give us an insight into the reasons why the central bank have identified this as important and is championing it? Sure. Yeah, no, thanks, Cathy. Well, I suppose a starting point for us in the work that we do is, you know, what are we seeking to achieve so we see diversity and inclusion, which we look at in the broader context also of behaviour and cultural change as an important part of delivering on the central bank's mandate of safeguarding stability and protecting consumers. DNI has become a significant area of focus for the Central Bank of Ireland because research has evidenced that having a diverse group of people working together in an inclusive environment leads to better outcomes. So better considerations of risk, enhanced problem solving capabilities, better decision making. So for financial services, similar to other industries, you know, there are significant challenges and indeed changes ahead. And, and we believe that harnessing a diversity of skill sets, backgrounds and perspectives is going to be an important part of successfully meeting these challenges and adapting to the changing world we're all living in. Yeah. And Shauna, to that point, do you think there's a, a difference between diversity and inclusion? Um, and, and how do you see the distinction? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a really interesting question. And I, I suppose because they are different. And for me personally, certainly in the last couple of years, I have found the inclusion element a really interesting reflection point in thinking about diversity and inclusion. I think I think it's important for me to say that the central bank's focus on DNI is not just focused on the firms we supervise. But it's also a really important part of the work we're doing ourselves as an organization to ensure that we are similarly equipped to face the challenges ahead and the work that we do so we set out that the central bank's vision is one of being trusted by the public respected by our peers and a fulfilling workplace for our people and dni is an important aspect of this in the central bank and of course you know, diversity itself can also often be discussed in terms of you know male female ratios and this is certainly a very important aspect but it's much more than this and i suppose for me the way i think of it is if you think of it as any dimension that can be used to differentiate groups and people from one another it has a lot of layers to it so some differences can be more self-evident you know age skill sets etc but then others are less so and, and perhaps more subtle such as you know perceptions beliefs and values and then inclusion for me then is, well, how do you harness diversity? And I think inclusion sits really closely with the behavior and culture focus that we have and, and looking at an organization. I think of that as the organizational effort and practices in which people from different backgrounds who have different skill sets, perspectives are accepted and welcomed and equally treated in an organization. So there's really very little value in a diverse workforce if that diversity isn't harnessed then through real inclusion that's going to allow everyone to bring forward their perspectives and their contribution and indeed to feel valued in an organization. And what's the central bank's view on the progress or lack of it in Irish financial services firms? And have you a view on where we are now? 
Yes, I mean, certainly I think what we've seen is that, you know, while progress is being made in some sectors, progress is slow. The central bank published an annual demographics report in 2019 uh, last year, and I think it's an interesting read. And what it does is it outlines that from a low base, uh, female representation and applications for PCF roles across financial services has increased since 2012. So that's the first year that we have data available. So in 2012, 16% of applications were for women compared to 26% in 2019. So it's increased. But if you look then at the statistics in the report on incumbent role holders, for example, men held 87% of current PCF positions in the asset management sector, 80% in banking and 74% in insurance. And what we also see there as well is that there continues to be a pronounced gender imbalance at board level and in revenue generating roles. And then looking you know, more broadly, perhaps at nationality, what we see is the majority of applicants for PCF roles were Irish, 63%, with UK nationals holding the second largest portion of applications at 18%. And I suppose in general terms, what I would say is, you know, whilst we may have observed a greater appetite in many firms to understand the true value of DNI and how it feels, feeds into the culture of the organisation, there is certainly a lot more to be done. And what action does the central bank want to see firms doing in the short term and then into the, to the medium term? Yeah, no, the central bank is going to expect to see significant developments across all regulated financial service providers in terms of diversity and inclusion. And soon uh, this is going to you know, include credit institutions, insurance and investment firms, fund service providers and so on. And what we, we think that the senior leaders in these organizations have to provide clarity of direction on their vision for DNI and how it is aligned to the strategic objectives of the business. DNI is going to need to be bolstered and underpinned by behavioral and structural changes. We think there needs to be re regular discussion of the prog on progress of implementation of the DNI strategy and plan. This has to take place among senior executives, and we would expect at least a comprehensive annual discussion by the board. But then over the medium to longer term, the central bank will expect to see concrete evidence of the effectiveness of these behaviours, structures and controls. And we're looking to see a diversity of candidates coming through in PCF applications and in the talent pipeline and succession plans of firms. And what do you see as the most challenging aspects for firms in, a, in addressing adversity? Certainly one of the challenges we've seen is, you know, you really do have to know where you're starting from uh, in the context of assessing where you stand. And in order to do that, you've got to collate and analyze relevant data in order to make that type of assessment. And it's only then that you can really start to target where improvements and actions are needed. So that is a challenge we have seen in certain firms. And how's Ireland doing in, in comparison with other countries in, in tackling this challenge? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, from a regulatory perspective, it, it's hard to benchmark how Ireland is doing in terms of, you know, comparatives to other countries as data is limited enough in terms of what regulatory authorities are doing. But I think certainly the central bank has been really clear that DNI is a strategic priority in terms, you know, not just as I said, of a focus on the firms we supervise, but also for ourselves as a public sector organization. For those of us who are around pre-global financial crisis and saw the soul-searching and investigations thereafter, there was a lot of comment on groupthink and how this contributed, especially in, in the Irish experience of the financial crisis. Are we at risk of the same thing happening, in your view? Yeah, I mean, certainly we've seen examples in Ireland where groupthink did lead to excessive risk-taking. And, you know, and in recent years, we have seen quite serious failures in terms of considering the impact of key decisions on customers and indeed to ask fundamental questions about, is this treating our customers failure or fairly, I should say. 
And I think, you know, something we can reflect on is whether a more diverse set of perspectives and less group think around the table could have led to better outcomes or different outcomes. So I do think it's worth reflecting, though, having said that, that what we're currently experiencing is a very different type of crisis. This is a global health crisis and pandemic, which is completely unprecedented in our times. You know, but of course, this global health crisis has major implications for financial services and the very significant role that financial services play in our economy. So I do think there is an awful lot for firms to consider now, even with all the other pressures arising in terms of DNI, as to how they are set up to respond to the challenges they face and into the future and how they're going to be most effective and able to do that. Will the central bank take diversity inclusion up in the supervision of firms? And if so, how do you see um, that taking shape? Yes, we have and, and will continue to do so. Uh, we have a specialist team that are conducting DNI inspections and we've published results from thematic assessments. We've examined the retail banking sector, we've looked at the insurance sector, and we're also developing a comprehensive behaviour and a culture framework which is going to integrate DNI into day-to-day -day supervision. Looking down the decade, what would good look like? to the central bank? Yeah, no, I, th I think that that's an interesting question. And I, and I don't think uh, there's no definition that I would have of what is right or a good outcome from a, a culture and DNI perspective. I suppose what I would say is it, it's for each individual organization to own their own culture and to embed it. And that's ultimately also going to be part of feeding into their DNI strategy within the firm. But what we do expect is that ownership of DNI has to be led initially by the most senior leaders within the organization. And in terms of our own agenda, what we're going to do in order to continue to drive improvements, we're going to continue to measure, analyze, and publish data and supervisory findings. We're going to continue to evaluate and assess whether firms are taking DNI seriously as a strategic priority within their organizations. And the assessment of DNI is going to be integrated into our culture supervisory framework, which is under development. And we're going to see where that takes us. But I think firms analyzing where they currently stand is critical. What are the reasons for a lack of diversity and how can this be addressed? But beyond that, there has to be ongoing monitoring and tracking of progress towards achieving a firm's DNI goals. And these need to be set and articulated. And moving on to something that you've mentioned several times, Shauna, already, and that's culture. The central bank has long since identified culture as a key driver in governance, treatment of customers, with the review of behaviour and culture in Irish retail banks. And we've seen developments like the Irish Banking Culture Board. The ACOI ourselves, we have responded with two qualifications designed to equip members in leading and embedding cultural change. Is culture still on the central bank's agenda or is there more to be done by the central bank and by regulated firms in this space? Yes, certainly, you know, culture and behaviour has been and remains high in our agenda. And as I mentioned there, the central bank's cultural supervisory framework is under development. But, you know, we, we continue to look at culture in a number of ways and we pick up cultural indications from day to day supervision, inspections, engagements with firms and indeed in our enforcement work. And every touch point with a firm is an opportunity for us to gain an insight into the prevailing attitudes and behaviors in an organization. So for example, you know, how proactive or reactive are they to issues, the level of challenge and discussions at board level, 
How are customer complaints dealt with? The maturity of governance or risk management frameworks and these types of things. So we, we don't form our view on the culture of a firm from just one or two pieces of information. And we certainly take a holistic view. And, and certainly we're going to be doing more in this space. I understand, in fact, that Gronia McAvoy, who's the Director of Consumer Protection in the Central Bank, is going to be participating in this podcast series. And I know she'll have some really interesting insights to share with you in that. And we look forward to, to talking to Gronia on that. And taking the traffic light analogy, what would the central bank like to see firms start, stop and continue in relation to their culture? Yeah, it's an interesting one, thinking about the traffic light analogy and culture. So if I was to say, well, let's say start, I, I think what's really important is cultivating organizational self-awareness. Uh, the culture of an organization, much like each of our own personalities, you know, has particular habits and traits. And that will be equally true of, of an organization. And, and these traits can both help us and hinder us. So, you know, self-awareness is key to leveraging what is positive and to addressing, you know, perhaps what is not so good. And, and self-awareness only comes from honest reflection, you know, really holding up a mirror and continually, look, continually looking to learn and improve. And it can be a challenge and it can be uncomfortable, but it's vital. And I think that reflection is most beneficial when there are a range of voices, diverse voices involved, and where there is safety to offer dissenting views. And, and this goes back to a psychologically safe environment. And if I were to think about then stop or, you know, what what I think there is a risk in treating culture change or as something that can be tackled purely through structural modifications. And by that, I mean, you know, new committees, new procedures, etc. And, and certainly while they may be part of the solution, I don't think they will succeed in sustainable change without accompanying behavioral change. So role modeling by senior leaders is going to be a key element in embedding the desired behaviors and making them, as they say, the way things are done around here. And then in terms of continue, well, I'd actually, you know, mention again, this continuing focus on diversity and inclusion. I think increased diversity, along with making people feel like they belong and feel valued, can really act as levers for substantial business benefits sound decision-making, effective management of risk, sustainable long-term financial performance. And in a world, you know, particularly as we see it now, where talent is more mobile than ever, being authentically diverse and inclusive can be a really good way of attracting and retaining talent in an organization. In October, uh, our ACOI annual conference dealt with the theme of compliance professionals as leaders and that we now have a leadership role to step into after years of being, you know, maybe an expert or a partner, an advisor. What role does the central bank see the compliance professional taking in driving a customer-centric culture? I think in the central bank, we, we really do recognise the fundamental importance of the roles that compliance professionals play in financial services and indeed, you know, how reliant we are on them in terms of performing their roles effectively. Um, I, I think compliance professionals have a really critical and important role to play in driving a customer-centric culture. I think in focusing and educating the business, not just on what the legal or regulatory requirements are, but the importance behind what these requirements are actually designed to achieve, and in robustly challenging the business, and indeed senior people, where you know the fair and professional treatment of customers and their interests is not being properly considered or addressed. But you know, of course, in this, there's also an enormous responsibility here for all the leaders in the, in an organisation. Uh, so you know that they role model that the compliance function 
is you know a valued and integral part of the business and uh, that has to be understood throughout the entire part the entire organization and that takes us into fitness and probity and 2020 saw some changes uh, to the fitness and probity regime several new roles were designated as PCF. For example, we saw the the chief information officer designated as a PCF 49 and bringing these roles within the regime and imposing the standards of competence and integrity on the individuals uh, filling these roles. The central bank published in November 2020 a Dear CEO letter on a thematic inspection of compliance by regulated firms with their obligations under the fitness and probity regime setting out the key findings and observations from inspections and helpfully expectations of the central bank split into the themes of the role of the board in the fitness and probity process, conducting due diligence, outsourcing of roles subject to fitness and probity and the role of the compliance function. There has also been enforcement action in relation to F&P failures and there are further reforms to follow in 2021 with the individual accountability framework. This was the second Dear CEO letter on the F&P regime. So it's clearly an important focus for the central bank. Why is the fitness and probity regime coming under such focus? And can you give our listeners some insight as to how it's going to evolve through 2021? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's kind of helpful to recall inter- when you're discussing the fitness and probity regime, you know, that it was introduced back in 2011 as part of a, a very comprehensive set of legislative reforms that arose from lessons learned from the financial crisis. And, you know, we, we outlined that the objective for us of the fitness and probity regime is that regulated firms and people working in firms are committed to high standards of competence, integrity and honesty and are held to account when they fall below these standards. So what the regime gives the central bank is the role of approving appointments to PCF positions based on our assessment of the fitness and probity of those put forward for these positions. And we also are given a role in investigating CF role holders in situ, where we have reason to suspect that we have cause for concern in relation to their fitness and probity. But the regime also placed very important and fundamental obligations on firms. And what we had noticed is that the very important obligations placed on firms under the fitness and probity regime were really not sufficiently well understood, nor indeed embedded effectively within firms. So for us, it's very important that firms fully understand and meet their obligations under the fitness and probity regime, you know, perhaps particularly so given that we are advocating for an enhanced individual accountability regime. Uh, We are currently working with the Department of Finance on the senior executive accountability regime on conduct standards for people and firms and we are also enhancing the fitness and probity regime so we really want firms to have the fundamentals of the obligations that are in place right and we think that firms that have do, that have done this will be better set up actually for what is going to come in the context of the IEF so it has been and will continue to be an area of focus okay so that's something to watch in 2021 for our members Yes, absolutely. And what should compliance officers focus on in relation to the FNP regime? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's it's the fundamentals of, you know, understanding the obligations under the regime, both at application stage for PCF, but also particularly on ongoing due diligence and being in a position to demonstrate compliance to the central bank. And we, we were looking to set out our expectations very clearly in the Dear CEO letter of November of last year. But a, a particular area that I might highlight, you know, in terms of a firm's own assessment of the fitness and probity of those put forward for PCF roles, this really does need to be a thorough and comprehensive 
comprehensive assessment and a firm may be asked by the central bank how this assessment was done and to evidence how a firm satisfied itself as to the fitness and probity of the person they wish to appoint to a senior role so that that's something i would particularly highlight and i would also urge that appropriate care is taken in completing the iq form that is submitted to the central bank as part of the pcf process Central bank needs to be able to rely on the veracity and accuracy of the information provided. It's a very important part of the process, and I, and I we do see that sometimes it's not taken sufficiently seriously. And you know, to one extent, you know, what what that's going to do, it's going to cause delays, uh, you know, because we don't have complete information. But on the more serious side of things, you know, the provision of false or misleading information to the central bank in the context of a PCF application is, is a very serious matter. So we, we would urge that that is, you know, given uh, the proper attention and due diligence at that point. Okay, so if in doubt, just put it on the IQ and and absolutely, yeah, absolutely. okay. And yeah. I suppose just maybe one thing I also might mention is yeah. um, we are actually planning to publish some guidance this year on the PCF interview process. And um, what we're hoping to do with this guidance is to help firms and people who will be attending in for interview to understand the process better. So that is okay. something that we're going to bring out this year. Okay, so that is something for our members to look out for as well then. Um, thanks, Shauna. Moving on to your, your own portfolio um, and the enforcement priorities. Shauna, you've led enforcement for the central bank for the last three years. In that time, the central bank has conducted 23 cases under the administrative sanctions procedure and imposed fines totaling 62.39 million. Of the 23 outcomes, five were imposed against individuals. How has the central bank's approach to enforcement evolved in that time? Yes, I mean, it's it's been an interesting few years. Enforcement is evolving and adapting in line with developments in technology, changing business environment, the complexity and variety of financial products. So, you know, gone are the days of, of paper investigations, you know, what would fill a room in paper now sits conveniently in your pocket. So uh, we have diversified our own skill sets. We've brought in specialists in digital forensics and data analytics to our investigation teams. We're looking to leverage artificial intelligence and data analytics to provide us with better insight and ability to undertake large scale um, data investigations, but as well to help us in identifying potentially fraudulent and nefarious websites or service offerings on social media. In terms of our approach to enforcement, I think it's important to understand that you know, we are not a zero tolerance regulator. We have a variety of tools available to us in addressing issues that arise. And in taking enforcement action, which is one of the most serious things we can do, what we are seeking to do is to address the most serious breaches we're looking to deter misconduct and we're really looking to promote compliance. So we published guidance on sanctions in 2019, which we published in order to help firms in understanding you know, how we determine appropriate sanctions in our cases. But there is also uh, something to reflect on more generally in terms of how the central bank will view the conduct of a firm in deciding how to address issues of non-compliance. So you know, what we're focused on is we want firms identifying issues early rectifying issues they identify and rectifying them holistically and well. We want firms to be fully compliant with RMPs imposed by the central bank in a timely way. We want firms to be transparent, open and truthful with the central bank in all engagements, bringing serious matters to the attention of the central bank, reviewing guidance and dear CEO letters from the central bank and conducting gap analysis and addressing any matters that need to be rectified. So these are all considerations that come into play for us in deciding whether to commence investigations and how we might ultimately view sanctioning. And do you see redress and remediation playing a bigger part going forward in addressing wrongdoing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as I said, there, we do have a, a, you know, a wide variety of tools available to us. And, and I think maybe it's interesting if you if you look at our recent enforcement cases, what you'll notice that these often share some common features, you know, for example, the very serious nature of the breach, including significant harm to consumers, instances where firms have failed to remediate breaches on foot of supervisory engagements, such as risk mitigation programs, or breaches in areas that the central bank has signals its expectations or identified as requiring specific attention through, for example, the issuance of guidance or a dear CEO letter. And I suppose, you know, redress and, and um, redress and remediation is something that's really important uh, in appropriate cases and how a firm goes about that and how holistically and well will certainly be something that we take into account. And, you know, and perhaps something I should just mention in the context of, you know, our focus and enforcement, we have outlined that we are seeking to enhance individual accountability. And as you mentioned, you know, we have seen cases in the last three years where the central bank has sanctioned senior people for participation in very serious breaches of requirements. And we indeed have prohibited people under the fitness and probity regime. You know, again, these are not actions that we take lightly, but it's an important part of our toolkit for us as a regulator. Uh, and I hope maybe by what I'm kind of outlining here that people will understand what it is that they can do in terms of, you know, even when things go wrong, fixing them and, and doing well in their engagement with us in that regard. And just moving on to the other part of your portfolio, portfolio, Shauna, um, anti-money laundering. We see from the European Commission's AML CFT action plan published last year that there's a strong focus in Europe on strengthening the AML CFT framework. We also noted last year from the Central Bank's publication of its transaction monitoring bulletin and Dear CEO letter addressed to Schedule 2 firms. Clearly, AML CFT remains a key area of focus for the Central Bank and at a European level significant proposed enhancements to the framework are being considered. What is driving the European agenda and what do you think it will mean for the future? Yes, I mean, the AML is certainly very high on the European agenda at the moment. And I suppose what, what's driving the European agenda is a reflection of, you know, looking at very serious AML CFT failings across financial institutions in Europe. Uh, uh, leading to a conclusion that the AML CFT framework is not sufficiently robust or effective. The Commission's July 2019 post-mortem identified that the divergent application of the existing AML CFT framework is a key structural problem which is hindering the EU's ability to prevent the financial system from being used for illegitimate purposes. And the EU or the European Commission's action plan is intended to close these loopholes and remove weak links, links in the framework. In terms of what's coming, I think we're likely to see a harmonised rulebook. I think it's likely that it's going to be overseen by a single EU-level AML supervisor. Now, to what extent that's going to, you know, what the remit of that supervisor is going to be, who the supervisor is going to be, what the model is going to look like in terms of, you know, is it going to be hub and spoke? Uh, is it going to be similar to the SSM? All of that remains to be seen. But I think what's absolutely clear is that driving for Europe to do better in combating money laundering and countering terrorist financing is going to be a key area of focus in the next years. Okay, so again, something for the MLROs among our members um, to keep a watch out this year. So what are the priorities for the central bank in, in Ireland bringing it home in 2021 um, in AML supervision? 
Yes, we're, I mean, we're continuing to deliver our program of AML supervision this year. We're going to be conducting inspections, albeit a little differently than how we usually do, at least for part of the year. We're going to be meeting critical role holders in the firms we supervise. We're going to be issuing our OREQs and analyzing the information that we get in. We're doing our work you know, differently at the moment, as I mentioned, but last year uh, we conducted 57 AML inspections. And I think it's you know important to understand that our AML supervision is risk-based. So there is more intensive engagement with firms whose businesses are deemed higher risk. You know, but every year we will have supervisory engagements with firms in different sectors, large and small. We have a capacity to respond and we do respond to intelligence that we receive from the FIU, from protected disclosures, from information from other regulators and indeed our own supervisory colleagues, where there are AML CFT compliance concerns arising in any of the firms that we supervise. Virtual asset service providers are going to come within our supervisory mandate this year, and that's a significant area of focus for us this year. We conducted a number of inspections uh, last year of firms conducting Schedule 2 activities and uh, we published our Dear CEO letter, as you mentioned, um, towards the end of last year, where we set out some fairly fundamental concerns that we identified and what we expect of all Schedule 2 firms. And this is going to be something that we will continue to focus on this year. We are very concerned with anecdotal evidence of firms conducting Schedule 2 activities who have not registered with the central bank. That's a very serious matter from our perspective. So I would strongly urge firms who should be registered and have not done so to do it as a matter of priority. And are there any particular areas that you think firms and I suppose our members would be very interested to hear um, what they should be focused on as regards the effectiveness of their AML CFT program? Yes, I mean, a, a couple of areas I would highlight, um, you know, I, I mean, this is nothing new in terms of what we might have said before, but it's so important right now that firms are keeping their risk assessments under regular review uh, um, because, you know, risks can change uh, and the firm, firms have to continue to be vigilant in understanding and mitigating the money laundering terrorist financing risks they face. Transaction monitoring is a critically important area. We published a bulletin on this uh, last year, and whilst perhaps it doesn't outline anything new, it really clearly outlines what we expect firms to be doing in this regard, and I'd strongly uh, recommend that people go through it. A note uh, perhaps on STRs, you know, just the importance of ensuring that suspicious reports are successfully submitted through Go AML with good quality information, and indeed noting that the revenue um, reports also need to go to the revenues online service now. We've been really clear in setting out that AML outsourced activities require proper oversight and governance. I think this needs to be a continued area of focus as does staff training. If we're all working a little differently now, it's really, really important that staff are aware of their AML obligations. I think it's important to, you know, this is, as I mentioned, it's a very fast evolving environment for AML. So keeping up to date on guidance on AML, CFT and legislative change is really important. An important part of our role is providing guidance to firms we supervise. There's also obviously extensive guidance from the EBA and FADF. We are looking ourselves at potential revisions to our AML guidance, which we published in 2019 in light of five AMLD. So perhaps, so perhaps on a more, more overarching point, you know, I think it's important, particularly now, uh, you know, with, with all of the, the challenges that we're, you know, facing that, you know, firms need to keep AML to the forefront of the agenda. AML compliance is not a tick box exercise, simply, you know, designed to meet certain requirements. And, and I think it's, it's important to always remember what is, what, what is AML compliance all about? 
in order for AML compliance to be effective, it, it's going to need investment in terms of technology, expertise and resources. It's going to need buy-in and support from senior management. You know, what the AML CFT framework does is it enjoins financial services firms to be part of a system which is seeking to prevent criminals from using the financial system to conceal the proceeds of their crimes. Criminals who are engaged in, you know, crimes like human trafficking, drug trafficking, etc. You know, they're looking to make money at the expense often of the most vulnerable people in our society. So we all have an important role to play here. And for financial services firms and compliance, it's about being committed to playing our respective parts effectively. It just leaves me now to, to thank Shauna, to thank you for, for coming in and launching uh, the Compliance Files podcast. And maybe you'll come back another time to, to share your insights with us again. Oh, thanks very much, Cathy. It was lovely to have an opportunity to talk to you. Why not use the rest of the lockdown to learn about compliance? The Professional Diploma in Compliance is designed for those who work or aspire to work in a professional capacity within a compliance function. It is a level seven qualification on the NFQ and accredited by UCD. On successful completion of the program, you can apply for the ACOI designation. The LCOI designation is the industry benchmark designation for practicing compliance professionals and satisfies the Central Bank of Ireland's minimum competency code. To find out more, contact ACOI at info at ACOI.ie or log on to our website acoi.ie Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.